Uh, Tonight's New Testament reading is from the book of Matthew and can be found on page two of the bulletin. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. And But after seeing Katie read the scripture from here, I was inspired to preach from here. Don't tell Glenn when he comes back that I preach from here. I might get in trouble. Well, my name is Mike, uh, one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome all of you. Whether this is uh, your first time or first time in a while, we're so glad you can join us for worship. And uh, as you heard throughout the service, we long to be uh, the extension of Christ's kindness here in the city. And uh, if you're still looking for a spiritual home, a place where you can worship, get plugged in, learn, grow together, Uh, we would love for you to consider us and be a part of the mission uh, that we believe God has called us to. Will you join me as we pray? Father, we bow our hearts before you now, and we ask that you would feed us with your word. Christ, you are the word incarnate, and we ask that you would come and that you would give yourself to us by your spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. As many of you know, we are going through our series called Experiencing God's Word. I love this title because it's more than just knowing God's Word. It's one thing to know the Word of God, another altogether to apply it tactfully, winsomely, graciously, in a way that pictures Christ boldly, courageously, and humbly. And that's what we want to be as a church We want to take what we talk about here, what we sing about, what we pray about, and we want to apply that into our lives, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, so that people around us would see Christ in us. That's our hope. That's our prayer. And so even as we dive deep into the Word in this this semester, let's not forget the purpose of uh, of studying the Word, which is to be an extension of Christ so that we can picture Christ the Word in beautiful ways. It is no surprise to any of you here tonight, but the Leaning Tower of Pisa is leaning. Yes, let me tell you why. Experts report that the 179-foot-tall tower, which was built in 1173, moves at the rate of one-twentieth of an inch per year. So basically none, but it's moving, okay? And now, thanks to the latest attempt to recenter the building, it is 13 feet out of plumb, whereas before, I think at its worst, it was 17 or even worse. Now, how did this happen? What accounts for the lean? The clue is in the name. The word Pisa means marshy land. Research has discovered that the soil at the base of the tower consists of clay, 
shells, and sand. Not exactly your ideal foundation. And that explains the reason why the tower began to lead long before it was completed. Every expert, engineer, and otherwise will tell you that the foundation is the most principal and important part of the building, and it can guarantee the success or the failure of a project. And Jesus, although not an architect himself, knew what's true of a building is true of a person. The principle is the same. The foundation will determine the strength of what's built upon it. And here in Matthew chapter 7, the passage that was read to us, Jesus says, what you build your life on makes all the difference, not only in this life, but in the age to come. And he exhorts his disciples, the followers, us, to be like the wise builder who not only listened, but obeyed the word. Let's now take a look at two things together. First, let's look at the two foundations. The parable of the builders is the final illustration in a larger body of Jesus' teaching, famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes and ends with a series of short parables that highlight the importance of hearing and doing the word. When was the last time you read the Beatitudes? Lovely, isn't it? I don't know about you, but for me, the Beatitudes conjure up images of precious moments, figurines. If you're old enough to know what they are, you know exactly what I mean with random religious platitudes, or these days, just random pithy sayings that mean nothing. Now, let me ask you, when was the last time you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? Not so warm and fuzzy, is it? In preparation for the sermon, I read the Sermon on the Mount several times, and all I can say was that I trembled before God. I trembled because of the gap between Jesus' call to discipleship and the reality called my life. Because Jesus, he doesn't mince words. He's got some tough things for us, things that are perhaps current Reformed churches don't talk much about. But let me say this. It is good for us to pause, slow down, and look intently into the law because it will reflect back to you your heart. As James says, the word is a mirror, and if you spend time looking into it, you will not only see the beauty and all of God's word, but you will also see yourself. And the two pictures don't align very well, do they? And that's part of discipleship. Being in that place of discomfort, being convicted, is part of discipleship. And by this, I don't mean that we're somehow saved by our obedience. Not at all. We're saved by grace through faith. But it is good for us Christians to be in that place of discomfort and allow the word to be the word. Why? You see, until we face the impossible demand of the law, 
and see how far we fall, grace is not going to be very amazing. Or as Tim Keller says, as long as we think we are not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. So let's get to the text and let's get uncomfortable, shall we? Starting with Matthew 7, 13, Jesus now begins his closing remarks. And Jesus begins by addressing the general audience who had been patiently sitting there listening to this extensive discourse, which is really between Jesus and his disciples. And in verses 13 through 14, knowing that non-Christians were at earshot, Jesus basically says to them, Everyone is on a spiritual journey. Everyone, atheist or not, we're all on a spiritual journey. He goes on to say, many are on the wide path that leads to destruction, and a few on the narrow path that leads to life. And he says, and those who find it, find the narrow path are few. At this point, it's not clear how one finds the narrow path, but he's going to get there eventually. But in the meantime, he addresses the folks to say, look, you don't get to decide how you're going to create your own path to get to God. The popular idea that all paths lead to God is unbiblical. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's the only way we have to God. All other religious leaders basically said, if you follow the right way, if you do the right things, maybe in the end you'll be lucky enough to get to God. But Jesus says, no, follow me, because I will get you there. Then he says from there to the disciples regarding true leadership. Starting in verse 15, Jesus warns his people of false prophets, these ravenous wolves that come in sheep's clothing. And here already Jesus hints at the whole external, internal thing. He says, externally, these false prophets look similar to true prophets. After all, they have the sheep's clothing. That's why Jesus tells his disciples to look for fruit, their way of life. Because in the end, who they really are will show, not in their teaching or even theology, but in their way of life. And there he pivots again, and starting in verse 21, Jesus again speaks to the disciples, but this time he speaks on true Christians, believers, if you will. Like false and true prophets, externally, Christ followers and non-Christ followers look the same. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let's unpack this a little bit. Let's first talk about the similarities between the Christians and the non-Christians, the followers and non-followers. First, they share orthodoxy. The fact that they both refer to Jesus as Lord, Lord, says a lot about theology i.e. their theology proper, who this Jesus is, and how he is tied to the Old Testament God of Yahweh. Secondly, they're both passionate about Jesus in Semitic languages to emphasize something with passion and emotion. You repeat it twice. For example, when David mourns the loss of his son Absalom, the text reads, 
Absalom, Absalom. And as people reading that passage, you begin to understand David's heart. That he's not just grieving, but he's very much grieving at the loss of his son. And lastly, they both were active in service. Jesus goes on to say that they prophesied in his name, cast out demons in his name, and did many mighty works in his name. And yet Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus just dropped the bomb. And the disciples are not just confused, but they're afraid, and rightfully so, because they're turning to one another and asking the question, is he talking about us? Because they fit this profile better than anybody else. If anyone's done anything in Jesus' name, it's them. And yet Jesus is saying, I don't know you. Get away from me. And in order to help ease their anxiety, and to help deepen their faith in him and not in their work, Jesus tells the parable, which is tonight's passage that was read to us. Now, when you read a parable, this is a pro tip for all of you newbies uh, to the scripture, you have to pay attention to the variable in the story. This parable is not about a good builder who built the house to code versus a bad one who did not. It's also not about a house made out of good materials versus a house made out of bad materials. It's also not about a good design that could weather the storm versus a bad design that could not. It's not about a light storm that came and watered your garden versus a storm that destroyed your house. No, it's about a house built on a solid foundation versus a not solid foundation. That means the message, the point that Jesus is trying to get at is tucked away in the foundation. And here's the meaning of the parable. It's rather simple. A wise person builds his house on a solid foundation. And when the storm comes, the house stands. Conversely, a foolish person builds his house on sand. When the storm comes, the house fell with a great fall, the text says. You see, based on appearance, it's impossible to differentiate a wise builder from a foolish builder. Just like a false teacher is impossible to differentiate from a true teacher or prophet, a false Christian or follower of Christ is impossible to tell, at least based on appearance. Until the storm comes. And it will. And let me say this to you all. We're all building on something. Your life is being built on something. Every one of you. What are you building your life on? Anything other than Christ is a counterfeit God, sand that will wash away. And that's why Jesus calls his people to reflect, not only in the words they heard, but in their own hearts and how they're listening to the word. 
and to examine their lives to see if they are applying the word. The Bible tells us that Jesus alone is the solid foundation, a rock. Psalm 18, 1 through 3, describes God as a rock of his people. And later in the New Testament, in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, we have Peter's confession that Jesus is the rock upon which the church is built. If you study that passage very carefully, Jesus does not say the church would be built upon you, Peter, but upon your confession that Christ is Lord. That's the foundation of the church. And praise God for that. Praise God that the church is not built on Peter, or for that matter, anybody else, but Jesus alone. He is that rock. And his gospel is a solid foundation that will lay claim to our hearts and our lives. And no matter what kind of storms come our way, he will call us his, and he will supply us with everything we need in order to weather that storm. In other words, any house built upon Christ will stand. And what exactly does it mean to build that house on Christ? Well, Jesus tells us it's doing the word living out the word. It's obedience. But it's not just an act of going through the motions, but it's obedience born out of genuine, sincere, living faith. James 2 reminds us that faith and obedience go hand in hand, that you cannot claim to have one, but not the other. So for those of us who claim to have faith, Jesus is asking the question, well, let me see your works. And for those of us who claim to have lots of works, Jesus says, but do you have faith in me? You see, faith in Christ will demonstrate itself in practical ways. And that's what Jesus taught throughout the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back and read the Sermon on the Mount, you will realize before long that Jesus makes the distinction between a wise and a foolish builder from the very beginning. A wise builder is the one who builds on Christ and will not harbor anger, lust, or dishonesty in his heart. A wise builder is the one who builds on Christ and, does, and, and loves their enemies and prays for those who persecutes them. A wise builder is the one who builds on Christ by trusting in the Lord for daily provision and seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. He has been making the distinction from the beginning, and now he says, how are you building your life? Now, if you're like me, you're probably discouraged because in many ways, you're not like the wise builder. You're not Chip and Joanna Gaines that basically flip houses in a matter of 18 minutes with commercials included. And if you're discouraged because your house is a never-ending project, meaning you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, but your house doesn't quite look like a house, I have good news for you. Take a look at this passage. Does Jesus ever say anything about the quality of the house? It must have something built before the storm comes. Does he say if you use the right materials then it might weather the storm. No. He makes no comment on the quality of the house. 
only that it's built on the solid rock of Christ himself. You see, the truth is, he is not looking for great faith or perfect obedience because he can do great things with imperfect faith and small obedience. And he is able to take even that and save to the uttermost, and that is the Christian gospel. All other religions will have you do all the right things, pursue excellence, check off all the box. Christianity says, there is obedience, yes, but that's not where you start. Come, understand that you are known and loved, and that he has checked off all the boxes for you. Rest well in that. Let that give you life. And then you can begin to live it out. Not with the hope that someday you can attain to that. No, because you have it already. It's yours. That's who you are in Christ. And you can live that out beautifully, joyfully for the world to see. And we all need to hear this gospel again and again and again, don't we? In this city that prizes perfection, it's easy for us to assume that that's exactly what Jesus wants from us. And we live with a healthy dosage of guilt and a lot of burden, heavy burden, because we're not perfect. And Jesus says, no, you don't have to be, because I am, and I've done that for you. Find your perfection in your faith in me, he says. Second, let's look at the two outcomes. For those of you taking notes, the second point is going to go by much faster. So just hang in there, okay? Two outcomes. The sad reality in our broken world is that storms do come. I wish I can tell you that somehow, if you are a follower of Christ, that you're exempt. That your life will be a walk in a park. And all his promises will be yes and amen all the time. But I can't. It will one day be the case. That's called heaven. And in the meantime, we fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who began this good work and will accomplish it. And on that day, he will bring glory with him. And everything our hearts long for will be true. But for now, we live by faith. We weather the storm, try to find some sort of footing, try to hold on to the promise, despite our wavering faith. And sometimes all we can do and say is, I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes a storm does brew at a distance and you see it coming. And you anticipate that with all your might. And other times it catches you off guard. Either way, there is no way any of us can adequately prepare for the storms of life. On August 29, 2005, Hurricane Katrina struck the golf course and revealed a fatal engineering flaw in the flood protection system. You know the story. It was meant to withstand 
hurricane, what, three, I believe it was, storms. And yet, long before it got to that, the levee system and everything else failed. It devastated the city and the people there. More than 1,500 people died, left some 400,000 people homeless. Uh, I'm sorry, left millions homeless and some 400,000 residents fleeing the city permanently. You see, this decades-old levee system looked really fine on the outside. After all, like I said, it was engineered to protect the region from Category 3 storms. But Hurricane Katrina exposed the hidden flaws. And the outdated engineering practices overwhelmed the city and the people in it and pretty much ruined many people's lives. In one sense, the story of Katrina is actually our story, isn't it? We prepare, we get ready, we recite the verses, we pray, we enlist people to pray for us, but the storm is hard. One email, one phone call, one diagnosis, one conversation, one event. That's all it takes. And it crushes us. I don't know about you, but as many of you know, most recently we lost a loved one uh, in our family. Thank you so much for praying for us, supporting us. We are so grateful for that, for the meals that you sent. <laughs> Was, uh, <clears throat> it was a practical reminder that God did not forget and that he still cares and loves us deep, deeply. But it's not easy. Sometimes I know in those unspoken, silent moments, uh, we have questions. We have questions about why, how, and how do we move on from all this. But the good news for those in Christ, no matter whether you're in a storm today or not, is that storms do come. And God is able to use even these storms to refine and mature us into the likeness of Christ, which is the ultimate good for all of us. Listen to these words in Romans chapter 5. Paul reminds us that through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, 
as a song we sang before the sermon. We do not suffer in vain. God does not waste our sorrow. He takes all of these things, and it's a mystery, right? Yet, he uses all of these things for his glory and for our good. And I hope in the midst of the storms that we go through, we hold on to these words and let these words, this promise, be a balm to us. Let's go back to the text and we'll end with this thought. There is another level to this parable. It certainly applies to the storms of everyday life that come, but Jesus has another storm in mind. You see, in the Old Testament, storms are symbols of God's judgment. And Jesus here uses an obvious reference to God's judgment from the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 7. And the language is actually pretty darn accurate. In Genesis chapter 7, we read that the rain fell, floods continued, and the waters increased and rose high above the earth. And here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus sort of piggybacks on even the words and the images. And he basically says that day is coming, that storm is coming. And the only one who can save you from this storm or that storm that is coming is Christ, the solid foundation. Let me end with this thought. Listen, our obedience to Christ is not the foundation we stand on. Praise God that our obedience, our faithfulness, our external expressions of faith, these things are not the foundation that will hold us and protect us through the storm. Because when that great day comes, the only thing that matters is our faith in Christ who will hold on to us. He is the one, the wise man who fulfilled everything that he just talked about in the Beatitudes and beyond. He is the fulfillment of everything he just said in the Sermon on the Mount. He is the one who prays for his enemies. He is the one who loves and and cares even for those who persecute him. He is that wise man who built his house. And so if you place your faith in him, guess guess where you are on that judgment day when the storm comes? You're in his house. And his foundation, that rock, will hold you. And Jesus invites all of his listeners because he knows then and now, the tendency is, okay, what do I need to do? Tell me. Five things? Great, I'll do it. Okay. See, Jesus? Look, I accomplished all five things. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Then you missed the whole point. Abide in me. Rest in me. Find your salvation in me. And then you can go out and do these things. But your confidence can never be in those things. Let him who has ears to hear, hear and respond to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your son. Christ, thank you so much for not only your truth that reveals to us our need for you, but for the salvation 
that you offer us freely. And that's why it's by grace. I pray for all those who profess you as Lord and Savior and have placed their faith and trust in you. I pray that this message will be a balm to their heart, will be an encouragement, an invitation for them to come and rest deeply in the finished work of Christ. I also pray for those who don't know you, and maybe they're here because they're looking into Christianity as a better form of religion. I pray that you would debunk that, that you would show them that there's a better way, that it's not about what they can do or what they don't do, but it's about their faith in you. And Lord, will you draw them even now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.